This is David Snyder from Harness Wealth, and you're listening to The Real Talk Podcast. Welcome to another episode of The Real Talk Podcast. Thank you always for our loyal listeners. We are on episode 53. Right now, we're recording at an undisclosed location somewhere in New York City with one of my ex-colleagues, a friend, an industry uh, friend and uh, personal friend. His name is David Snyder. I would have to say David is probably one of the most successful individuals that I have encountered in my life, and he's younger than me. And success can be defined in various ways, both subjectively and objectively. He's completed his undergrad at Duke, attended Harvard Business School, worked in the corporate field at Bain for a few years. He's published a book on Wall Street. Uh, It talks about Wall Street and finance. You can find it on Amazon. I will put it in the show notes. Uh, All before, I guess what, turning 30? 30? Yeah, 30 years old. So that's quite impressive, quite impressive. Uh, I could say David is one of the best serial entrepreneurs of our modern time. We met around eight years ago at Urban Compass at a small loft office in Soho with just a few brokers and a few dozen engineers. He started there as the COO, then eventually became the CFO and handled the financial operations of Compass until it became about a $1.82 billion company. Fast forward to today, David is the founder and CEO of Harness Wealth, an early stage consumer wealth tech company dedicated to helping clients unlock their financial opportunity to achieve their best financial future through their individualized, customized approach. We'll speak more on that later, but for now, David, welcome. Thank you. Well, if it weren't for you and some of those early adopters, uh, Urban Compass would have never made it uh, to Compass. So thank you for, uh, for your faith. I'm just a speck of the building block that is being created right now. But yes, thank you. Um, you know, I think when I first met you, I, it was just a bunch of good-looking guys in one room, very diverse, good-looking guys in one room with long, wavy hair, and I couldn't tell the difference between you and the rest of the C-suite guys that uh, were the founders of the company. But, you know, one thing that I did realize and what helped me jump to Urban Compass from town was the caliber of your backgrounds at the time was something that the real estate industry has never seen, at least in Manhattan. I can't speak for the other, other states. You know, Rob with... White House and Goldman, you with uh, Bain and, and wrote a book, published a book on that, that I found on Amazon. The Rob Lehman and the Mike Weisses and the uh, Jonathan Granas and, and the Ugos and the just very diverse, very talented, uh, very intellectually stimulating. And that was probably the main reason that I joined. Not necessarily because you guys were a branded company already or anything like that. So, um, yeah, no, you were, you were definitely a, a big part of, uh, of recruiting the talent that, uh, you know, originally made up Urban Compass. So, uh, just a couple minutes. I want to, for the audience that may not be totally familiar with you, answer these in a couple words. One to, one to a few words. I'm going to give you ten words. Just give me what comes up in your head. Rapid fire. Okay. So, the first one is the COVID-era residential real estate market. Head spinning. COVID-era leasing market for New York City offices? Paused. That's a good word, yeah. Rob Refkin. Indefatigable. Indefatigable. <laughs> I'm not sure that's the right pronunciation, but it's definitely the right word for him. Okay, we'll look up the spelling on that and we'll put it in quotes specifically. Inflation. Worth watching. 
de Blasio. Time for a transition. Okay. Real estate brokers. Builders. Mr. Eric Adams, who actually you've met at uh, one of our future events. Hopeful. Hopeful, okay. The real deal. Provocative. <laughs> That's great. Robinhood, the, the company. Uh, misaligned. Misaligned, interesting, okay. Personal finance. Very important. Very important. Okay. Uh, just a quick question. What, what do you, maybe do you want to elaborate a little bit? I'm curious of what you think about Robinhood. I mean, they just IPO'd. I believe the ticker was Hood. Very controversial doing, during the, the meme stock era uh, earlier this year around February. What do you mean exactly by misaligned? Yeah, so that business was really born out of an understanding that there were two profit pools in stock trading, at least on the sort of consumer retail side. Mm -hmm. One was charging a fee when you actually wanted to place the trade. Sure. The other, in some cases, was figuring out where that trade was routed to on the back end mm -hmm. became, at least in modern Wall Street, another source of potential profits. That mm -hmm. if you're Fidelity, you're doing your own trade execution, yeah. but smaller players could sell that execution in the actual sort of market-making piece at its own profit center. And so the folks at Robinhood said, well, gosh, like, we don't need the first piece. We can make enough money on the second piece. Yeah. Um, and they took the same approach of like, hey, you can do um, certain crypto activities without a fee. Well, there too, it's like if the exchange rate is favorable to the house, if you will, sure. there's still a profit to there be made. Is, and yeah. so I think wherever there's ambiguity in how a firm is making money relative to its consumers, there is the potential for misalignment. I think the second piece was investing in personal finance, very important. Yeah. Um, believing that it is risk-free or, you know, one directional, actually. I don't know if you've listened to, um, to Rob on the recent um, uh, How I Built This Podcast, mm -hmm. but yeah, he talks about using leverage and losing all the money that sure. he had made at one point. And I think Robinhood, for a number of people created an ease of that same outcome. I mean, there was a, a tragic case of someone who committed suicide. Yes, there was, yeah. Based on, I think, just misunderstanding even, you know, the context of what happened. He was trading options, happened. right? Exactly. Yeah. And so the... He read something wrong and he thought he lost this X amount of money. Yeah. yeah. Like I, you know, a total believer that if people have an instinct or they want to, you know, put 10% of their money into stocks that they believe in, like, awesome. Great. But understanding what they're doing and the risk and the magnification of risk with options trading and leverage, I think is problematic. And so they're, sure. you know, it's a little bit like um, a Facebook to some degree in the sense that well-intentioned as a platform, but without enough, you know, moderation controls that can sort of have these unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the same thing with Robinhood where it's a ethos of democratizing access to financial services. That's awesome. It's great. But if you, sort of do that in an unbridled way without the right amount of controls, information, et cetera, it can be, you know, financially dangerous for, for some of their users. It's like going to Vegas and gambling it away. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, we'll talk more about that a little later. Let's go on to the next section, warm-up questions. So just to, for our listeners to get you, you know, they wanna, we want to understand you more personally. So uh, tell me, like, where are you from and... You know, I, you, I always get, every year, thank you, uh, your family Christmas cards. A lot of uh, You have a lot of 
<laughs> your family, I, I don't understand the dynamic there. So maybe you can explain like, how, uh, where you grow up, your parents. Yeah. You have a lot of siblings, it seems like. I know your brother, uh, who used to work at Urban Compass, but yeah. yeah. Um, so in my immediate family, there are only two of us. So I have one brother, Jonathan, uh, who works in real estate development yes. in New York. My maternal great-grandparents started this tradition in the 40s uh -huh. of doing a holiday card every year and having sort of a, a theme or something more fun. Yes. He, was, uh, he actually started a commercial real estate brokerage based out of Philadelphia called Binswanger, which is my mom's maiden name. Oh. And um, that tradition continued, and I think, for a lot of families, you know, with the multiplication of generations, geographic spread, like that tradition, yeah. you know, has mm -hmm. a shelf life. And very impressively, it has continued, you know, now for whatever it's been, 75 yeah. plus years, I think, of yeah. cards. And so my immediate sort of family nucleus is four of us. Okay. Now six of us, because my brother and I are, are both married. Sure. Um, but it looks a lot bigger when you are taking sort of three wings of a family of a going family. up to a, a posthumous, yeah. you know, yeah. matriarch and, and patriarch of the family. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and yeah, I, I really like the, did you guys rent out Lincoln Financial Field that one year? Or was, uh, was we did not rent it out. Uh, we we got it was, access. It was the family in, in the whole. You know, it was the it was middle middle of the field. Right? Yeah, yeah, it was really yeah. cool. Um, you know, Philadelphia in some ways is a small town, and I think you know, like with you knowing real estate in New York, I think as a result, members of the family who are based there know, know a lot of people. Certain people, and, and you know, getting the right permission <laughs> on a Thanksgiving Thursday or whatever it was, yeah. when there wasn't a game to. Okay. To, you know, buy enough jerseys and have us on the field yeah. and, and take a picture. It's pretty cool. Um, so, pretty yeah, cool. it's, you know, growing up, up in Boston, to part of your earlier question, mm. not a, you know, a huge Philadelphia fan sure, uh, in most sports, though. Occasionally, if they're in their own conference, they can be a secondary team. Sure, yeah, yeah. Okay. But, uh, yeah, before I was born, they did one at the Philly Stadium. Okay. After, I think, the Phillies won the World Series. Uh -huh. And then... Um, did Lincoln, Lincoln Financial. Wow, well. that's good. Those are good back-to-back uh, -back years, back-to-back -back photos. Uh, what is your go-to New York City restaurant? You know, it's shifted. So I used to live in, in Greenwich Village for uh, eight years. I had a, an enviable commute um, to most so, of the Compass offices yes, that, that I worked out of. And uh, there was sort of a great corridor of mm -hmm. university place and nearby restaurants. So... Loring Place, we loved when it opened. Yeah. Uh, Taverna, which is the Greek place on University, uh -huh. is a great spot. It's unfortunately one of the, the COVID restaurant casualties at a place called Saigon Market that I almost never ate at but had amazing uh, takeout. So yeah, that's right. Those yeah, were kind of like closed. the old yeah. old spots and um, moved down to Tribeca and have had a lot of fun finding lots of new, of new ones. So what, what do you have a Tribeca go-to these days? You know, we've only been here so many sort of months outside okay. of COVID. And so we're still, you know, for nicer occasions, like Nobu, we love Franchette, sure. you know, Lakanda is an old staple. Mr. Chow. Uh, Mr. Chow. Mm, exactly. Yeah. So um, I, I am still working my way up to okay. regular status. At, we'll report uh, back a little later on that. Okay, yeah. great. Outside of Tribeca, do you have a favorite New York City neighborhood? I mean, none of you live here, but let's... Expand out. Yeah, no, I mean, um, I 
the restaurant that I, I always sort of think of as my favorite, because I've done a couple of fun birthdays there, is, is Raul's. And so sort of that oh, yeah. Soho, sure. you know, Nolita area, I think, is, is uniquely charming. Okay. Um, okay. Me. Great. Since you used to work in real estate, did you have, outside of New York City, did you have, maybe not just even from a real estate standpoint, it could be a personal mem- memory or a personal life experience, a favorite city or state outside of New York City, New York State, and why? So I went to Duke for undergrad, oh, yeah. and when I was there in the early 2000s, Durham was not a city that people generally <laughs> held in the highest regard, but there was something architecturally about it and the history of the old factory, some of which had been converted at the time, and I uh, wrote my senior thesis on the potential for the redevelopment of downtown Durham. Oh, and that okay. really has played out, no, you know, thanks to me. But, um, <laughs> and it's, you know, now one of like the top 25 destinations where the New York Times talks about different food cities. They've had a bunch of hotels open. And so I think both my nostalgia for my undergraduate experience coupled with such urban transformation that I always find fascinating to to watch. Um, Key and Rob Refkin, we may have to open up a Compass office in Durham as well. We're in Raleigh, we might as well go to Durham too. Absolutely, you yeah. know, we just hired for, for our company two engineers in Charlotte. I think the, oh, okay. the entire, and that's obviously a couple hours away, but yeah, yeah. you know, I think <clears throat> Charlotte and the Raleigh-Durham area are booming. Mm-hmm. Um, Lots a of lot potential of there. Super talented folks there. Lots of potential there. Okay, good to know. I, I thought you were gonna say like, you know, the, the, the stereotypical answer of like LA or Aspen or, you know, Chicago or- All, all great places, you know, all great places but, yeah. uh, you know, outside of New York and Boston, I've spent more time in, okay. in Durham than anywhere else okay. in my life. Good, good. Uh, for the next question, do you have a role model in, real, in, in the real estate industry? Uh, who and why? So I'd have to go with my grandfather, um, who was sort of the second generation of that commercial real estate sure. brokerage that, that I mentioned, in many ways because his skills and personality are so different from my own. So, uh-huh. you know, I early on thought about, oh, am I going to go, you know, work for that family business, et cetera. And at the end of the day, sort of, he has this immense magnetism, EQ, you know, when it comes to understanding a PL, like would be totally lost, but <laughs> just knows how to connect with people and sure. build relationships that are not networky, but truly memorable in a positive way. He's the kind of person mm-hmm. who walks into a restaurant, you've been there twice and people you know, know remember you. him. And so I think recognizing the value of being someone that people want to interact with. And I think the role of brokers is actually a much tougher role in real estate than others because you've got to put up with a lot of people and it's a lot easier if you're a developer and you become successful enough that you've got a source of equity and you can sort of be mm-hmm. as difficult as you want to work with. Sure. If you're a, an intermediary service provider, et cetera, you've got to figure out a way to have your own personality for people to want to spend time with you, but also to be, you know, distinctive, credible and, and uh, you know, comfortable in your own skin and so I think that's that's a great skill. Did, did your grandfather have a, a specific niche? Was he a, a commercial leasing? Was he in building sales? Was he in hotels? Was he it in was, retail? Um, so the, the company was really focused on commercial and industrial brokerage uh-huh. and he really focused on 
larger businesses, a lot of them sort of manufacturing or distribution oriented mm -hmm. that had, you know, plants in wherever parts of the Southeast or the Midwest. Gotcha. Um, but it ran the, the gamut. I mean, he, mm -hmm. he tells a great story of, um, trying to get some building sale done with Seagram's and oh. could not get Edgar Bronfman on the phone, who at the time was running, Edgar Bronfman Sr., I think, you mm -hmm. know, running Seagram's. And uh, he knew that he went to one of the uptown New York clubs nice. like every Tuesday and would, you know, steam at 4 o'clock. Studio 54, have, maybe. Have, <laughs> uh, have lunch or, or drink afterwards. And so he showed up in a full suit and tie into the steam or sauna of whatever this thing was <laughs> and was like, Edgar, I got to get an answer from you. You know, I can't, I'm not going to leave. He's like, Frank, get the, you know, the heck out you know of here kind of thing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, jokingly at least, you know, wouldn't leave until that was done um, and, oh. and got the deal signed. So there's also an element of, of personal persistence. Take notes, brokers. You know, you want to you find a client. You got to go, go where the client is, you know, do whatever it takes. Uh, must be phenomenal. Before tech, right? You're selling industrial space. I mean, probably just hammering phones all day and trying to connect with and meet with people. I mean. Yeah, I mean, my, my uncle, um, uh, one of his three children, my mom being one of the other two, um, would talk about early in his career, you know, going floor to floor in like premium New York office buildings, just like <laughs> door knocking, door knocking, meeting the receptionist, leaving the card, trying to talk himself in, you know, et cetera. And so, yeah, different, different element. Wow, but, different you know, hustle is hustle. Yeah, no, I love it. It's a great story. Uh, definitely a highlight. Uh, and then on last question, you know, the real estate industry, a lot of brokers have become very successful in their own ways. One in particular was to be on television shows, mm -hmm. uh, reality TV. You got, you got selling New York, you have a million dollar listing and it, it, it works because it's great marketing. Uh, if you're a developer who, what developer doesn't want their, you know, $10 million tower sellout mm -hmm. on national television. So let's switch to you know, your current industry, the financial services industry. Do they need reality television? Uh, it's an interesting <laughs> question. I think that um, there's an element with sales and marketing businesses sure. that if you're working with someone who has their own brand, that's only going to sort of carry you with coattails. Um, in financial services, there's an element of the same, um, but it's about building trust. So yeah. no one believes that, you know, because Charles Schwab was on TV, you know, Charles Schwab is going to generate better investment returns. Right. But there is a sense of like, oh, if that person's on TV, you know, I can talk to Chuck or I trust that business, et cetera. And so I think it's credentialing in a way that overlaps uh, with real estate, but is a little bit different where I think it's about what is the right way to be seen as an expert in both getting a referral from someone who you think is thoughtful and has worked with someone is a great way, you know, to get a pathway in, um, being written about in, in, you know, best of breed publications, ads, credibility, mm -hmm. et cetera. I think real estate is sort of a little bit easier in some ways you can show like I've worked on these properties right. and they sold effectively show buildings right you know I think in traditional financial services it was like well what what was your what were your returns right and so if the returns were good that was like your historical 
building sales and mm -hmm. that was enough, but a lot of the value today is not in like picking that right stock. It's actually in figuring out how to structure the dollars coming in, the dollars you have, so they work most effectively in the most, you know, tax advantaged ways for you. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a lot of what the, you know, ultra high net worth has been able to effectively do is have a team of people that are able to sort of orchestrate those pieces and selectively make direct investments. You know, we're jumping ahead a little bit, but yeah, yeah, sure, part, yeah. Of, part of um, mm. our focus at Harness Wealth is how for builders, business owners, like real estate agents, tech employees, founders, um, investors, et cetera, how to pull all those pieces together. How do we help you digitally right. understand what you could be doing, who the best experts are to actually, you know, deliver on those opportunities and then data to help sort of pull that together in um, one financial system of record for our clients. Yeah, I think we'll get to more on that later. It's, 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 a good, it's good that you mentioned that. Uh, but if, let's just say, Bravo came up to you today and said, oh, does Harness Wealth want to be on TV? What would, you, how, what would your response be? Uh, I, I think it would definitely <laughs> depend on, on the concept. Like, yeah. I will say that... They don't um, want to make, you don't want to make yourself look bad. On you know, I, when you say that, I'm thinking, like, the only Bravo show that I've seen multiple episodes of, to be totally honest with you, is Below Deck. Okay. Um, which is hilarious to watch if, if yeah, you're already about episodes, sort of yeah. the, the luxury yacht industry. And yep, I, yep, yep. I'd be curious whether that has been a net positive or a net negative in terms of the way that they, you know, make fun of the guests and, and some of the things that can Neutral, go wrong. Right. You know, and yeah. so it's like yeah, the wrong concept, I think, can kind of hurt you if it's the um, finding a way to make this stuff a little bit more like the Robin Hood layer to it. Like, how yeah. do you make the right things a little bit more fun and gamey, et cetera? Right. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, but, I mean, you I, know. I'm sure the, the, the movie Wolf of Wall Street made a lot of people want to join Wall Street. And, uh, it, you know, Bravo had definitely made a lot of people want to join the real estate industry. Yep. You know, I'm sure there's uh, below deck people want to join the, the boat, the yacht, the yacht luxury yeah. yacht industry. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, uh, you know, Michael Lewis, who wrote Liar's Poker, which was sort of the first mm -hmm. great Wall Street book. Yeah sort of said he wrote it thinking it was him exposing this and, you know, no one would want to go in. And <laughs> most of the people that would come up to him, you know, at a book signing event were like, so how do I get into Salman Brothers exactly? <laughs> and so yeah. I think the uh, allure can be different from, you know, the intention. Yeah, yeah, day so to day, it's, yeah. It's a, it's a maybe. Yeah. You know what's funny? Uh, below Deck, I, uh, we had two girls at my, um, uh, we had a, a Hamptons rental. And uh, one of the visitors were actually two girls that will be on the next season or next series of Below Deck. And I think it's in, like, Norway. And I, maybe I'm spilling too much, but I didn't know this. Fun fact, uh, the girls don't really get paid to be on the show. They, they, they go at cost. Interesting. And, and I don't know what cost is, but yeah. uh, for them, it's, and it, it's, it's their own actual real vacation at cost. Uh, and uh, I don't know. Like you said, is it a net negative or net positive? I mean, if you have to pay so much and still be on camera... You know what? what what's some the, people <laughs> what's love the benefit that. of being um, on camera, but not that would be not be my choice. Yeah, no, I'm spending that kind of money. Yeah, no, I get it. So you don't want to be on below deck, is what yes. you're saying? Okay, uh, let's go into uh, just general topics and, and talking points. You know, let's go back to Compass. Uh, you you met Rob. Um, 
I guess right before Urban Compass was about to be founded. Why well, I believe was it New York Needs You? How did you guys meet? How did you guys we connect? We met at three or four years before that. Um, oh, okay. We were at a conference that was hosted sort of over New Year's down in South Carolina. And um, I was really interested at the time, still am, in mm -hmm. educational opportunity. Sure. And uh, a mutual friend of ours said, oh, you've got to meet Robert. You know, he's starting a nonprofit focused on helping first-generation college students succeed. And I was like, that sounds great. So he convinced me to, to join one of the leadership groups that he was putting together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we'd get together for, for a lunch or a drink every, you know, six or 12 months. Okay. So friendly but not you know close, friends not close best friends. friends right and um he then you know reached out in the very early days so he incorporated the company with um uh ori and mike and, and alex stern was there at the beginning too in october of 2012 and i think it was january of 2013 that he reached out to me when i was still in business school saying, hey, you know, we need someone to run finance and operations. Would you be interested? And, and that was the, the beginning of the next chapter. Interesting. So, you know, with real estate, it's kind of an interesting field, right? Because it, it doesn't have the, back then, it didn't really have the allure. Uh, the brokers themselves are, maybe they don't get the best reputation from a professional industry standpoint. You know, we're not, maybe brokers just in general, not highly regarded like a, uh, like someone on Wall Street or someone like in financial services. Uh, what was, did you have a personal experience with real estate brokers outside of your grandfather mm -hmm. prior to joining the Compass? And what was that like? Yeah, so it's interesting. I think some of the early members of the team felt antagonistic towards yes. brokers, their processes. Definitely. I actually had a great process. Like I rented in New York for the first time in 2009 when I was starting at Bain Capital. Was it a university place? Um, that apartment? It was on Irving Place. Irving Place. That's right. Yeah. That's and right, yeah. Uh, right by a friend of a farmer. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, worked with a, um, an agent who I, I tried to recruit a company. She's still at, at uh, another firm, <laughs> uh, at least last time I checked. Uh -huh. But, um, you know, I spoke to a few agents that, you know, wasted some time, but I sure, outlined sure. what I was looking for. And it was the first place that she took me to. Oh, I checked good. every box and I was like, great, done, you know, happy to pay the fee. Good job. You and your, you your commission. Like, yep. You know, You're it, was busy a, guy. it was a full fee rental, but it, you know, I think Bain covered some of it, which was helpful. Oh, and, good. And, uh, that always helps. you know, she delivered. So uh -huh. I, I had no, um, nothing but good things to, to say. Um, and she actually helped buy my sort of first New York apartment that I purchased because oh, it was good. before Urban Compass had anyone. Uh, that Any did sales, sales agents. It was in the neighborhood right. specialist days when they used to rentals. But um, there were, I think, people early on that felt like antagonistic. I actually, I didn't, independent of Robert reaching out, had been exploring opportunities to start something mm -hmm. in the residential real estate space. But I was less focused on the agents. I was actually more fixated on how inefficient landlord operations were. Oh. It drove me crazy. I lived in a BLDG building during- Which, which one? Um, uh, is it 117 West 13th Street, okay. maybe? Yeah, all right. You know, right by Flex small Muscles. Small yeah, yeah. yeah and, they have a small building there, yeah. You know, it's like we would get a paper bill- under uh -huh. the door, and then I'd have to write a check. And like, there are all these things where I was like, the process of verifying me as a renter made no sense, could have been more efficient uh -huh. and more telling accurate, whatever, to avoid delinquencies for them. And the process of 
cash collection was woefully inaccurate. That was hindering their own working capital and sure. certain things that if you're running like a big normal business, you'd really be focused on. Mm-hmm. So I was really actually much more focused on that. How do you build something that is better for the renter, but ends up generating, you know, real economic value for the landlord. Right. And, uh, you know, was sort of exploring oh, that when Rob reached out and I was like, you know, they've already got some great backers on board, a great team, uh-huh. uh, even before, um, in those very early days, kind of like what you had said, that made it very easy to, to decide to join. The Going back to your point with BLDG, not just calling out BLDG, you know, it's, it's, it's every landlord, Solio or any of the large family landlords mm-hmm. in Manhattan. It's, it's the same issue. There are antiquated ways that the landlords still want to do business. And, and part of that is because it is a generational business. And you probably understand this, you know, when, when your grandfather does a certain thing a certain way and wants, he's still the boss and then the, passes down to the father and then the passes down to the son, but the son wants to do it differently, but the dad is still the boss and it's just an integrated way, but they're used to what they, they're used to, they know what they know and they don't want to derive away from the playbook that they've actually had drafted since the seventies and mm-hmm. it's, it's worked for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but well, you are right. There are definitely ways that can still be improved uh, whether it's an adaptation of certain technologies like DocuSign or uh, cer- certain types of credit check or background check systems like OnSite, or you know, there are certain ways payment systems that could be uh, done uh, on one platform rather than you know the accountant cashing checks from individual ten- tenants. Uh, there's that's still an area in our industry that needs to be improved, but is a very very crack mm-hmm. in, in short. Uh, going back to Urban Compass though, you know when you first joined it, the iteration of Urban Compass was still kind of too replace the traditional rental brokerage model. Uh, didn't you have a little bit of a, a resistance to that if your experience with rental agents were pretty good at that, at the, at that point in time? Yeah, I mean, I, um, I saw it as an opportunity to bring technology to the process. Sure. I thought that there were opportunities for search to be better, for the collaboration, for the efficiency of the closing. And so, yeah. you know, there were among the neighborhood specialists, people that had been agents. I mean, not dissimilar from Redfin, where there's some people that... On salary. Yeah, yeah. you know, we're, we're open to a different economic set of incentives and, and a more capped, mm-hmm. you know, financial upside. And so that wasn't intrinsic in it. It wasn't like get rid of these specific people. Sure. It was like, hey, are there ways to generate efficiency and take significant market share, et cetera? Um, Turns out, at least with the way that we were running it, you know, there there wasn't in that model, but it, it led to I think uh, some pretty important insights. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. I mean, if you if any of our listeners had listened to how I built this with Rob Rafkin, uh, which was published about two week a week and a half two weeks ago, uh, he did say, you know, and, and I don't know, I want to get your thoughts on this and how you felt when he realized that this business model does not work. Meaning, he guaranteed that certain apartments will be rented at certain time frames and guaranteed that you guys will cover the rents or cover the fees or whatever it may be. The financial, the fin- the financial model just, made, just did not make sense. When he realized it didn't make sense, I mean, where were you mentally from an from a operational standpoint? You know, so I joined March of 2013. I was, for the first couple months, laser-focused on the thing not falling apart. It was a company that was a few, it was like 10 folks when I joined, they ramped up or we ramped up to 40 neighborhood specialists Mm -hmm. before launch in May when Mike Bloomberg came into the office. And so the first few months was like, 
let's make sure people get paid, you know, right. and that the lights stay on the office, et cetera. Yeah. And then in probably June of 2013, turn my focus, they had raised $8 million of capital before I joined. Yeah. And was spending capital pretty quickly. Pretty quickly. And so Eight like, million is a lot of money, a, but it can go pretty quickly. You think quickly. so, but with all of a sudden when you've got, <laughs> you know, 60 plus people um, on payroll, on payroll yeah. it's, it's a real thing. And so I, there was a need for more capital. And so I, starting in June, was totally focused on selling the story of Urban Compass. Mm-hmm. Neighborhood specialists are going to generate Leverage, I mean, very similar still to the pitch that, that Redfin yeah. makes or made going public in yeah. terms of we'll have a better cost structure when you get enough renters per person serving them, et cetera. Uh, and so I was just myopically focused on raising capital, raised $25 million, um, with Robert and mm-hmm. Ori. And it was through that process that Robert Norrie said, you know, I joined as head of finance and operations. They're like, we think you're reasonably capable. We want to make you the first C-level executive outside of the two of us who at the mm-hmm. time were, were CEO and executive mm-hmm. chairman. Um, so I had just spent, you know, hundreds of conversations and months selling this vision. <laughs> um, at the end of the day, it was like, well, you've got 25 million, so there's no better time to pivot than now. Than now, yeah. Because the challenge is how do you prove enough that when you go out to raise capital, you know, you've got a track record of it. And so you kind of get a reset button every time you raise capital because it should buy you 12, 18, 24 months of, of runway. Yeah, and so hopefully a year. I was like, least, yeah. yeah, if you can convince people where the revenue comes in half a million, a million dollars at a time, you know, That's, great. It's and, good. and fairly shortly thereafter, we were already chatting with, with Leonard and Hervé yep. um, about it. So there was, there was not a lot of time to second guess. It was like, this is what we're doing. And there were definitely really hard conversations that I was part of with neighborhood specialists that had left other jobs, joined the company in this role. And for some, um, thinking of like, you know, Pat Sherbo and I think Rini, there were opportunities to jump to a different operational role Mm -hmm. and thrive. Um, the opportunity for some that had been salaried to say, Hey, you can be, be an, an agent, agent. Yeah. and you could be very good at it. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's hard without a lot of experience, but there's a path there. And, and, and you have people it, like Jake Velasquez and Natalia who are immensely successful because exactly. of the opportunity. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but it was still a, a tough transition. <laughs> I'm sure. You know, yeah. Um, I mean, you must've been scared when the, when the business model had to be flipped and this is the conversation you were like, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't know this was, I mean, I luckily, or, you know, for me, it wasn't any different. Like I, okay. Yeah. I just been promoted, you yeah. know, yeah, I had yeah. a, a bigger role. We had 25 million. <laughs> we had more bank, money. So it was like, well, you know, I, all right, I'll build a new operating well, model. Yeah. Like I can, you know, I can roll with the punches here, but no, the, the, the human side is really the, was the, the tougher of like having to have conversations with people that, they signed up in a matter of months after they signed up. Uh-huh. Hey, like the job you signed up for is no longer a job here. Yeah, yeah. There's some other options, but they may not be attractive to you. Mm-hmm. Um, the, when you said you raised money, you or you helped raise money, wait, what do you speak to us like just non-finance people? We're, we're real estate brokers. What, what goes behind the scenes in raising money? You just call somebody that you know that has money and say, hey, you wanna, you know, we'll give you some equity and you want to give us a million bucks? Like, how, What's the gist of that? Yeah, so there, there are two components uh, to this typically, you know, that are sort of different challenges. There is, how do you actually just get enough dollars? And 
anyone can, you know, you can go to who have who has money, you can get money from. And so if you look at the Compass capitalization table, you've got real estate developers, you've got, you know, high net worth individuals, you've got, you know, any number of folks. Um, That is challenging. But in many cases, the bigger challenge is actually finding the lead investor for a round, which is someone who's willing to say, I know enough about the market and this company to set a price. This business is worth $100 million today, and I'm willing to put up 10 million at that valuation. Mm -hmm. And our team and advisors that we pay, legal otherwise, are gonna do a diligence, make sure all the documents look right, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Most, the vast majority of investors in Compass were not lead investors. They were investors that followed. And so a lot of the challenge was, how do you convince the anchor lead investor that A, it's a great business to invest in, B, you know, this is a, the valuation or, yeah. or guide them towards the valuation that, um, that made sense. And then after you've got that in place, go fill it in with either other traditional venture firms or with- Like um, IVP or Founders Fund or Thrive. Yeah, so like IVP is one that led the Series C. Okay, so, so he was the- We, I flew out with Robert in 2015, summer of 2015, I think it was, mm-hmm. to- they had been in our office, but then convinced their full investment committee that we were investment worth making. They led the Series C, wrote the biggest check, but then you had to sort of, you know, fill in the rest with other investors. Other investors. Same sort of process with Wellington for the Series D. They, they, they led the Series D? Wellington did. Yeah. Um, and and then, so it was, it was different in every case, you know, with Fidelity that led the Series D before SoftBank. I met them at an investor conference that mm-hmm. I, I went to oh, um, okay. because we had gotten to that stage in 2016, 2017, where we were on the radar for every major investment sure. bank. And a lot of them do conferences that brings together late stage investors or IPO scale investors with companies that, you know, are north of a billion in value and mm-hmm. are, are seen as really attractive. And so I met um, Fidelity that invested in the Series E, Glenn Capital I met. Mm-hmm. Uh, that came in, in in the Series E, um, Dragoneer, who invested, I think, in the Series F, maybe. Okay. Um, but anyways, there's an element to, to finding the lead, and so... Who was the lead in, C- in our Series A? The Series A was Advanced Publications, oh. okay. um, which is the parent company of the Condé Nast family office. And what, what did they know about real estate? What did they know about the value of Urban Compass then? So they, it's a media empire, mm-hmm. um, and they were really interested in investing in things that looked like the future of businesses they owned that could be in decline. Mm-hmm. And so within that Condé Nast media empire, a lot of publications make a lot of money from real estate ads and sure. classifieds. Lots, yeah. And there was a hypothesis, belief that new, more digitized ways of transacting in residential real estate would emerge. And this seemed like an interesting one. That's fascinating. So, Who knew? Yeah. Um, that, that was sort of the, the genesis of, of that. Got it. Who knew? Um, and then, I guess, related to raising money, SoftBank obviously gave us the most. Mm-hmm. I mean, what was the story behind that? Did somebody know Masa? Or did you? I, I, Rob told us the story about how he met Masa, mm-hmm. flew in, got rejected out for five minutes, came back, flew back. It was a one hour meeting afterwards and lots of money. Um, what were there? I mean, m- as our listeners know, SoftBank does have kind of a notorious or perhaps maybe not even the, it, it, 
not even an uber positive track record as far as you know having um, invested in various companies. Uh, one being WeWork, uh, the other one being uh, the construction management company uh, that just went under. Katerra. Katerra, yeah. Um, you know, what, what was the decision in, in having SoftBank lead the, the final biggest round before the IPO? A few elements to that. I mean, I think the reason that uh, Masa was able to raise the biggest private market growth fund ever with the Vision Fund at $100 billion was because he had been very prescient in technology, and I think Asian technology in particular. I, I could be confusing the companies, but I think it was Alibaba yeah. um, that he, he made an early bet on. He that, did, yeah. That paid off multiples of what was lost right. in WeWork or, or whatever the WeWork yeah. investment was written down to. Um, so there are no investors that have a perfect track record, mm -hmm. um, at least none that have 10x deals Every single that, time. You know, yeah. I think um, there was an investing style there of confidence in making pretty quick decisions. So there's, sure. there are SoftBank investments. They've got a, a big team that are made through a process of lots of people and diligence. Mm -hmm. And then there are deals that are done through a process of Masa believing in a founder or founders. Yeah. Also believing, I think, in the market opportunity at a very high level, but largely that this is someone who's going to, you know, be able to succeed in that area. And so, um, anyway, so I, I think last time I heard, I actually think that the returns have been pretty good because a lot of the less notorious investments because they weren't as flashy as that we work and they didn't, you know, go down. Yeah. I've actually done really well. Really well. Oh, you're talking about outside of softbanks investments yeah, outside in, of Envision fund. They've, they've yeah. had lots of, you know, sure. big wins across mm -hmm. the globe, mm -hmm. um, in the U S as well. Mm -hmm. I, so yeah. So the, the series E process kicked off in the summer of, of 2017. Yeah. I was sort of, running it in a more traditional way, you know, Fidelity is sort of the, the first to sign up. And I think SoftBank also really likes following, as, as most investors do, following investors that they respect the diligence process. Sure. So I think the involvement of all the big name, you know, Helps. venture and mutual fund companies right. previously, you know, is part of what uh, I think piqued the interest. And mm -hmm. then obviously, um, you know, Robert and Ori in person, I think, impressing, you know, Masa was, right. was equally important. Right, yeah. No, I, I think Masa definitely does uh, uh, like to go by personality or individuals um, based on his track record, or based on track records of companies that he's, he's uh, invested in. Mm -hmm. um, so let's, let's switch gears. What you've seen and learned at Compass, and there are lots of brokers at Compass now. I think they just announced that there's a total of 25,000 staff and brokers uh, as of like last week, over 25,000. It, what what did you see as a theme amongst the commonalities of brokers that were successful or had done well or had joined Compass and then became immensely successful? Mm -hmm. Was there a one or two things that you've seen that were maybe certain traits or or certain types of characteristics or certain types of habits? I mean, did you learn anything about that behavior? It's an interesting question. I think the agents that joined in the first couple years 
were, I mean, all the agents that have joined are entrepreneurs. They're running mm -hmm. their own 1099 business, many with, sure. you know, multiple team members. But I think there was a, a particular requirement of entrepreneurial mentality, willingness to sort of bet on themselves and that a group of smart people could help power them more. And I think, hopefully you would agree, you know, we, when I was there, uh, they sort of in the last several years have de-risked it. That it's yeah. now just the best platform to yeah, run yeah. your real estate business now, off yeah. of. Uh -huh. um, hard for me to know because the, in terms of the, the second part of the question, because there were agents that were so successful in such different ways. And I think there are some businesses that say, hey, we just want the agents that do the five million plus dollar listings because those look great. Yeah. Um, or there are places that say, we only want the high volume, whatever. I think Robert, to his credit, really sort of said, I want agents who are great business people, operators, et cetera. And we're equally happy with someone who does 100 transactions in a year at 500K as we are with someone who does one, you know, $50 uh, million yeah, dollar 15, yeah, transaction. Course, yeah. um, and so I think knowing what you're good at or what trajectory you're working towards mm -hmm. is important. I think there mm -hmm. were some agents that, you know, saw where they were and they wanted to be Leonard and they tried to like skip all the steps in between that, that he had went yeah. through in building his yeah. business. And so I think recognizing where, you know, you are, they are, et cetera. I think the other piece was um, a lot of great agents worked for someone else. And there definitely were people that I saw over the time that were very successful in another industry, thought it would be easy being an agent and so I should just be my own team, whatever, mm -hmm. and, and struggled where I think being part of a successful team, understanding how it operates, how you interact with clients, how you run things is a great stepping stone. And so I think that Compass support and emphasis on teams has been quite beneficial for I think having some homegrown talent and, and enabling agents to be more productive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think Rob, you know, Rob said this very, very early when when Urban Compass changed the compass. The future of real estate is teams. Mm -hmm. You know, so let's build the ship to cater to teams. Yep. And and actually, Rob Lehman said this. Uh, shout out, Rob. Uh, very, very interesting. Piqued my interest in one of the large meetings. He said, you know, Compass is really built to uh, empower the teams that are already running relatively smooth and then hyper accelerating their growth mm -hmm. versus individual members that are brand new that might need uh, a lot of training yeah. to kind of how to grease the wheel and how to get the, the ship off the ground and how to actually become a real estate agent. Exactly. So yeah, no, exactly. I, I totally understand. Uh, I know you're a busy man and we're running out of time, so I want to uh, pivot. And I, 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 I use that word too much, I beat it up, but uh, let's pivot to Harness Wealth. You left Compass and uh, you went back to Bain for a year mm -hmm. and then you decided uh, there was an opportunity in this space where uh, people that are not necessarily qualified up to be putting money with a family office or maybe even just a, a hedge fund, um, there are people that still have wealth but don't know what to do with their money. So, like, so this is explain to me why you joined and, and why you yeah. started. Yeah, totally. You know, so, well. you know, I... Um had been at Bain Capital before Compass, had the opportunity to rejoin as an executive mm -hmm. in residence with their venture team. And 
the key insight that I took away from Compass was the power of technology enablement of great advisors. Mm -hmm. And when I got to Bain, my focus was on identifying opportunities along that sure. theme. Yeah. Um, both some things that they looked at investing in, as well as potentially starting something. Uh -huh. And when I sort of dove deep on the wealth and technology space, in part from my own pain points, talk about that in a second, I just saw a huge opportunity yeah. that the traditional infrastructure, both software advisors, et cetera, had not evolved to meet the needs of next generation wealth and builders. Okay. Um, and so the idea was, how do we help people that are focused on creating value, generally through equity, meaning you own your own business or you're, you have equity in a tech company, you're building, mm -hmm. et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, how do we make sure that they don't miss major opportunities and that they're getting the best financial outcomes? Gotcha. And so to do that, I spent a lot of time studying the ultra, ultra high net worth family office space. So I, I spoke with leaders at the Gates's family office, with the Walton's family office, with some other high net worth families. It's such an ambiguous world. None of us really know. Yeah. To see like what, what are what they doing that we ought to replicate yeah. at scale for yeah. a, a broader um, set of people. Okay. And one of the key learnings that came away from that was the intersection of financial planning, mm -hmm. tax strategy execution, trust in estate work um, with investment management, like actually picking what you put you know, your investable dollars in. And so that was the model that really started Harness Wealth, which is how do we help, you know, talk for instance, who's got a successful thriving business, who's got his own business P&L, who's got, you know, income and then needs to think about like how to structure the business from a tax perspective as he becomes more and more successful, you know, how to deploy dollars that are coming in into the right savings accounts to maximize tax deferred value mm -hmm. so that you don't have to think about all these pieces, but 30 years from now, after you've been generating a huge amount, that money has worked as hard for you mm -hmm. as you have to, to get it. Mm -hmm. Okay. To, to be part of that, do you have to have $20 million? Uh, to, I think the, the minimum for a family office was like one, a billion. You have to have a net worth of a billion. Our, our, <laughs> our, our focus is on, you know, people with a couple hundred thousand and up. Uh -huh. So okay. we like Compass take a very advisor centric approach. We think that for very basic situations, robo and TurboTax is awesome. Sure. But if you run your own business, you're probably graduated from TurboTax. Mm -hmm. If you have Compass non-qualified options because you joined early and now you're thinking about when to sell and is this a peak tax year or a low tax year mm -hmm. and how do I defer those gains, you probably want to talk to someone. Right. And so our focus is on how you pull all that together. Mm -hmm. So um, pretty much every, certainly every Compass agent team head, you know, could or should be a, a Compass, uh, a Harness Wealth client. Mm -hmm. um, and, and many of the sort of members of those teams as well, just because the nature of the business you're in, there's more tax complexity. And so very much. Of, we've leaned in very heavily into tax as a core part of the offering because mm -hmm. for most of our clients, that's the first thing you need to figure out how to set up correctly and optimize before worrying about what to do with investable assets. Most agent leaders or teams 
from what I know, they have a CPA or an accountant on retainer. Mm-hmm. And they do the payroll and they do, they'll file the taxes come tax season. They'll advise on quarterly payments or estimated payments. They'll advise on the various scenarios as, you know, if how much salary you should pay yourself for the mm-hmm. Schedule K-1 or, mm-hmm. or if you, you know, file 1040. What's the difference between a, an agent hiring their own CPA versus uh, Harness Wealth or going to, uh, going to you guys and asking for tax advice? What's the, you know, are there benefits? Are there pros and cons? Yeah, so listen, if someone loves the CPA they're working with, they should keep working with that, mm-hmm. that CPA. Part of the way that we've built it is it's not a one-size-fits-all solution, which is most of financial services. We have clients that love their CPA and come to us because they need a financial plan done or because they uh, you know, have been successful and want to think about investing assets mm-hmm. or they you know, just had a kid and want to create a will and a revocable trust or uh, a, a generation-skipping trust. Gotcha. Um, what we've done that's unique with the tax side is integrating it with the rest of the harness platform. So um, a lot of compass agents have equity, not so easy, and a lot of those CPAs don't know the nuances of how to think about this. We've built technology around how to help think about liquidity events for private market equity Mm -hmm. and what's the intersection between tax and the financial planning. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of what we're building, you know, very similar to the trajectory over many years of Compass is how do we aggregate information to create more features and tools around it? So our goal is to become the financial system of record. And so today you sort of send a lot of information to a CPA, they get the stuff done, but you never really think about it, you know, much beyond that. Yeah. Wouldn't it be a lot more valuable if a lot of the information is automatically sent to them that you then have that visualized back so you can see year to year how your income has changed and how your after-tax returns have been across investments. And so we're still very much in the early days of the journey, but Mm -hmm. really bringing together all the pieces of your tax and financial life in Mm -hmm. one place. You know, it's interesting because a lot of us successful agents, they... We're good at what we do. We know what we know, but we don't know what to do with our money except maybe, you know, put it into a, uh, a SEP IRA, as some mm-hmm. real estate coaches might say it, or, or uh, buy uh, certain stocks. Just put money in your brokerage account and buy mm-hmm. stocks that you like or you've seen on TV. Um, you know, what kind of advice do you have to those agents that don't have maybe a direction right now? And, you know, they're not going to retire anytime soon. They're mm-hmm. going to continue to work and do what they do and, know, you know, and, and obviously they know what they know. Yep. I mean, listen, it, it's an easy audience to speak to because it's the difference between, um, you know, anyone can buy a home. Um, sure. Or, yeah. you know, they can try to, you know, sell it themselves, et cetera. I think the there's, – so there's value in an advisor of, like, just expertise in general. Yep. I think what is different here is – it's not a single transaction that's going to make the difference. Mm-hmm. It's the year in and year out differences in terms of making sure that you're properly uh, taking all the right deductions, that you're maximizing dollars you can put away in tax-deferred accounts, that the mm-hmm. tax-deferred accounts, if you have a fixed income exposure, those are the ones that you want to have, like, the fixed income dollars invested through because it's tax deferred where yeah. it's not in your, you know, taxable personal account. Um, you know, if you're in a situation where like 
the downturn happened, like you don't want to be using credit cards and borrowing it inadvertently because it's easy, 24% interest. If you have a stock portfolio, you can be taking a loan against securities that you have, which is also a tax At two, 2% or 3% exactly. or something lower. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So they're like all of these things that take an ongoing approach. And so making sure that you've got the right team helping you financially, and that it doesn't have to be expensive, like through us at least, you can do it obviously through lots of other solutions. You know, you can do a fixed fee financial planner who you talk with quarterly or annually to get this stuff set up. You can have someone who's full service and more sophisticated, you know, that can help you do these things. Obviously the, the tax side is, is both executional and also strategic, um, but there's just a ton of opportunity. And so most people know in their heart of hearts whether their money is set up the right way or whether they're ignoring it because it's like daunting, overwhelming, or Very. uncomfortable. And I yeah, think, it's uncomfortable. You know, for, see, just, just for those that there. aren't there, it's like there is a real cost to not paying attention. Sure. Like the, the stats that I share with our, our team is if we help someone who's got a million-dollar liquidity event capture 20% more, which is the delta typically between being able to capture long-term capital gains versus short-term on, mm-hmm. a, on a stock sale. Okay. Uh, and you compound that over, I think, what is now like 30 years. It's like an $8 million difference. 30 years, huh? $8 million off that 20%. Right. Hmm. Interesting. So that's advice in that one event. If on that million-dollar event, you get a, I think it's like a 7% return versus a 5% return over that same time period, it's like an $18 million delta. Wow. And so the power of compounding is real, but it only works for you if you got time. Mm-hmm. And so if you're a successful agent, team leader, 35, and is like, I'm making a lot of money now, I don't need to worry about this, you probably don't need to worry about it, but you're also leaving probably millions of dollars on the table over time if you're mm-hmm. not set up the right way. Well, well, it's scary to think about. Yeah, if you, you look back and you're 50, 60 years old and you look back and someone tells you, well, you missed out, you had this much money, you missed out on you know, $20 million, that is life-changing. Doesn't feel good, doesn't feel good. That, that, would be, that is definitely life-changing. Yeah. You go back to what you said, you had some, you said you, you made some mistakes. Every six months you would look at your financial position and then you realize you made some mistakes. You know, specifically, what, what were you talking about? Maybe you can give me an example. Yeah, so, you know, there were kind of uh, two factors that drove me, to, or three factors that drove me towards starting Harness. Yeah. You know, one was that theme of technical element of advisory services that mm-hmm. I took away from Compass. I think, you know, two was just, there are a lot of macro trends in terms of wealth being transferred or made by millennials and Gen X and yep. traditional firms kind of oriented to- I mean, to, think about how many IPOs, how many tech IPOs did the U.S. experience in the last 24, 12 months? Several right? hundred, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, so many millionaires were born right. overnight. Right, but then the third piece was just my own personal pain yeah. point. So, yeah. you know, yeah. we, we've covered I mean. this. That's I was a, you know, private equity investor. I've yeah. had, you know, MBA from uh, an Ivy League school. I, like, was CFO of the, you know, of the company. Yeah. And still, every six months, I would typically find something that I should have done differently previously. Um, and that ran the gamut. So Interesting, in the yeah. early days of Compass, I wasn't aware of Section 1202 QSBS, where if you hold stock in a business before it has $50 million in assets, not options, but stock, and you hold it for five years, 
in uh, across the country, there's no federal uh, tax, tax on it. There's not in uh, New York. There's there's tax on it in certain states, but that's a little bit more nuanced. But mm. it's like a massive, you know, wealth opportunity. Wow. I didn't realize that, you know, I shouldn't just have the exact same portfolio allocation in my 401k as in my, you know, personal account because mm-hmm. the way that they're taxed differently, like, skews the optimal return. I was, you know, donating to charity by writing checks and didn't realize that I could, with as little as $5,000, move stock in whatever company or even a mutual fund or index fund into a fidelity entity and give that money away like it's cash, but never pay tax on the gain of that stock. Well, it's like a setting up a, like a IRA? Uh, that's called a donor advised fund. Donor advised fund. Yeah. Hmm. So ah, who knew? You know, there, there are a bunch of these things that when you think about it, like start adding up because it's, you know, thousands of dollars a year or tens of thousands or millions of dollars in the case of QSBS. Yeah. yeah. And then it compounds. You know, I think those examples just sold probably a lot of our listeners. That's, um, it's, it's it definitely the, the pain points that you were talking about definitely seems painful. I mean, I'm, I'm yeah, sure you learn and I'm, from that, and I'm, obviously. I'm seeing it right now. Like, I, I use an advisor on our platform to help advise me in thinking about the post-lockup Compass shares and mm-hmm. how to think about it. And there's all sorts of stuff I would never have known despite my background, if not for talking to them um, about that. Let's, let's talk about that. You're a, a customer comes in. Let's mm-hmm. just say I come in or Danielle comes in and uh, we log into your portal. You're not giving me the financial advice you're connecting me to, or Danielle, to someone on your platform, correct? And what, what is that, how does that work? Yep, so um, we algorithmically will help identify, based on your profile, what are the services that are likely to be the most impactful mm-hmm. for you. So if it's you know, going through a liquidity event, it may be that it's worthwhile for you to have a one-hour equity planning session with a CPA that or a tax advisor that came out of Anderson or Ernst & Young or PwC to help you understand it. Someone with a little bit of experience. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you know, it may be that you're starting your business and you should first talk to a tax advisor about structuring that, et cetera. So yeah. there's an element of like, what should you even be thinking about, mm-hmm. which I found valuable and I think, you know, lots of people do. The second is, okay, you want to have a financial plan done or you want to evaluate new tax advisors. Who are the best given all the attributes about you and the services that you're looking for? And so in our approach, we'll typically surface three different options in each of those that we vetted, not just upfront, but on an annual basis, not Mm -hmm. just on an annual basis, but we capture feedback from our clients, like of those who interacted, who ends up converting with them, Mm if they're working with them, what's been the success of that, et cetera. Um, and then we integrate a little bit on the back end. So we're, we've also built a sort of integrated personal financial management software. So that over time, we can help become that financial system of record for you. So sure. if you don't have a billion dollars and a staff of a couple that are pulling this all together, we can do that digitally and have your real estate holdings, your Compass non-qualified options, your you know, stocks that, you know, you bought on some platform, et cetera, all in one place. And that information, you know, over time as we build flows to advisors mm-hmm. and the stuff that advisors are doing for you flows back. In it's similar to SoFi, 
but maybe more with more in-depth tools. Yeah, SoFi is very yeah. lending focused. Um, yeah. I think a great. But it gives you all the data of who, what your financial picture is, and your including your real estate holdings and yes. and yeah. whatnot. But yeah, the yeah. the goal is how do we pull things together to make it easier? Um, how do we create access to the right advisors, give them the right information to serve you the most effective way mm-hmm, that makes mm-hmm. things simpler, more valuable, um, and more comprehensive. All of this sounds very expensive. How do you guys get paid? I mean, how much are you going to charge me? You know, like, I guess that's the biggest question for all these. People are afraid to talk to financial advisors or money managers or hedge funds because you know, they're notoriously known to get very wealthy off fees, even maybe they may not perform. Well, I mean, uh, to the first part of your question, it's a little bit like, you know, someone coming to, you know, a member of your team looking for a rental and saying, oh, well, you know, Leonard Steinberg is part of the same company. So clearly that's not for me. You know, our focus is having advisors that run the gamut. So Uh um, we work with a number of companies going through liquidity events, uh, you know, a a lot of big names that that you've heard of, you know, the largest IPOs in the past year. Sure. Um, we want to have a solution for all of the employees to navigate stuff. So that one-on-one equity-focused tax session, $250. Okay. You know, for some providers in the platform, it's a financial plan for, you know, less than $1,000 a year. For others that want, you know, a sophisticated, you know, mini family office type structure, you know, they're spending tens of thousands of dollars because they're getting value that is a multiple of that in those right. services. And right. so and that's assuming people like that probably have a couple million dollars worth of assets or yeah, they have exactly. You know, where it's, it. We don't want anyone to work with an advisor where that interaction is not positive ROI. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, are any of the fees based on performance or I guess that depends on the, what type of option you choose? Yeah. So um, obviously in, in tax, it's, it's not performance based um, or in trust in a state though across all of the verticals, we have a satisfaction guarantee. So if you worked with an advisor, didn't like the advice, the experience, we actually um, will rebate to harness oh. clients the, the full fee. Oh, wow. Um, in financial advisory for the uh, advisors, if you engage one that has a asset-based fee, meaning mm-hmm. the number, amount of assets, they're aligned in that the faster your assets grow, you know, the they more get that paid. they get paid. And so it is aligned relative to the traditional model, which we don't have any of, which are brokers that are paid on brokerage commissions or transaction fees. Right. So the advisors on our platform, none are getting paid based on the investments they put you into. That is the case with like the majority of financial advisors in the market. Mm. They're not getting paid a fee for buying some index fund or, you know, individual security as well. And so it creates as much alignment as possible. Okay. Would you recommend your service to, let's just step away from real estate brokers, but, a, you know, a partner at a doctor's office or a 1040 staff that still works at Ernst & Young? I mean, it, does, do these services apply to people like that as well? They certainly can. I yeah. mean, we are very focused if you come to the website and look at the messaging mm-hmm. on helping the demographic we refer to as builders, which is people that are generating wealth through equity-based compensation. What does equity-based compensation mean? It means you've got stock in the company that you work for, you run your own business, you're a equity K1 partner in a firm, et cetera. So Mm -hmm. 
we have and certainly can serve people that don't fall into those buckets, but mm -hmm. the language on the site certainly is focused on Sure, that. got it. Okay, understood. Uh, last two questions, and then we're going to wrap up here. What stock should I buy right now? <laughs> I think... Um, okay, give recommendations. <laughs> it's, it's a... Uh, a challenging, a challenging question. Yeah, I, I am uh, personally, you know, bullish on uh, COMP at its current <laughs> trading <laughs> that levels. That's my next question. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, I, I think it's difficult to um, to do. I would say that that is also not where I spend all of my yeah, you know, of course. time I know, these days. I know. On, You're a finance guy. Figures with a shot. But I, I will say that I think um, there is truth to some degree in, in buying what you know. And I don't mean that like, oh, I drink a lot of Coke, so I should buy Coca-Cola. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, if there are, if you're an agent and there's some software that you're using of a company that recently went public mm -hmm. that you think a handful of agents use, but a ton are going to use over yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those things I think are worth buying. I mean, I, I would joke yeah. with um, about Latch. I've seen Latch. Yes, yeah, nice. with one of the cool, senior partners cool at at Bain Ventures. That uh, you know, I, I ought to create a fund just of the softwares that my team at Harness has selected oh. because they tend to be like we have really thoughtful people running different divisions. They tend to be the winners in the category and to do really well. And so, I, I think there's validity in picking things as long as they're early enough in their arc of being a public sure. company or, or you can get access to them as a private company, that there's room to run and you're not going to buy at a price that's hard to justify. Right. But in general, I think a, a balanced approach with the vast majority of your money is the right one. <laughs> get <laughs> all of the allocations and tax stuff right so mm -hmm. you have the most value uh, in the long term. And then, you know, be willing to play if you want uh, with some portion of funds, either in direct investing in the businesses of peers of specific public stocks or of anything else that, or, or real estate assets. Sure. Really you know, we, we just, you just touched on this, but give me a reason why you're bullish on compass stock. I think yesterday was around hovering around, it's been hovering around 12, $13. Mm -hmm. Sure. You know, why are you bullish on it and where do you think it'll go in the future? So there are, um, and again, I'm, whatever, not, not a registered financial advisor. So you shouldn't, you know, yeah, yeah, sure, say of sort of thing. Um, but, uh, there are three tech enabled real estate transaction businesses today, um, that are all around the same market cap. Okay. There's Redfin. Sure. There's Open Door. Yep. And there's Compass. Mm -hmm. Um, there obviously are, are other well, there's things. The tech enabled. There's yeah, Zillow yeah, and, and there's, you know, Zillow's um, the, the big one, but they do I buying and, and Douglas Selman probably trades, but like really just focus on, but they're not really like, tech enabled Douglas Selman and correct. Like, is not. Let's focus on those three, which are, you know, often I think comes to each other at the moment. And, or last time I checked within, you know, a week or two ago, the valuations of those went open door, most valuable then mm -hmm. Redfin, then compass. Mm -hmm. Um, and personally, I think if you're making a bet in the space, Compass has the most long-term durable model. Mm -hmm. um, I think that Redfin has shown it can continue to grow, but it hasn't translated into the exponential growth that I think people expected. Mm -hmm. I think with Open Door, the iBuyer market 
is real, but it's a single it's digit percent of the market. Yeah, it's so And it's niche. one where it's a commodity transaction, meaning that if you're a seller, you just want, you know, the most valuable, the, the highest offer, yeah. basically. Yep. Um, and so what does that mean? It means if you're in that space, you either have to win by having the lowest cost of acquisition for your clients, or you have a lower cost of capital to buy it and sell it. Right. And in my opinion, Zillow is going to win that game because they have 50 million uniques a month versus um, whatever Open Door does today. And they've, they're both whole companies. So their cost of capital is, is relatively similar. Um, and a lot of those companies are competing in the same markets where the housing stock looks very comparable. And very. it was built largely after 1990 or 2000. It needs a lot of a work. significant concentration of the housing stock is priced between 150 and $400,000 yeah. you know, per transaction. So yeah. anyways, I, I think that's a commodity play. I think Redfin has some structural operating challenges in how do you train cheaply and effectively people that want to be agents that don't turn over when they get really good at it and realize that they can make more money, more money being, being a company than, than yeah. being Redfin. Yeah. So there's challenges there. I think, you know, listen, um, uh, you know, Compass today is not the highest margin of those businesses, but I think if you believe that there is a durable role for agent mediated transactions in residential real estate, it's got the best platform for that, you know, bar none. And so, yeah. Um, I think that there is additional white space in the markets that it operates in. I think there's additional white space in new markets. And I think that now, especially more so than several years ago, I think traction is being made in some of the ancillary services that add value, whether that's to the agent and then to the client, like in Compass Concierge, yeah. mm -hmm. um, or it's like many companies doing more in financial services that is helping with bridge loans mm -hmm. or helping, you know, agents with cash flow management, etc. Or we're helping, we know we bought a mortgage company and a title company, yep. so that's supposed to help within the tech platform to streamline the mortgage application process and the appraisal process and the commitment letter process and the, uh, and same with title. Yeah, so, all yeah. those pieces. Yeah, okay. Well, there you have it, guys. Thank you so much, David, for your time. I appreciate it. Yeah, let's stay in touch and hope, hope for the best. And follow David, uh, his company, we're gonna put in the show notes, uh, www.harnesswealth.com. Uh, his website, and you can also follow his Instagram at Harness Wealth. Davey, thanks a lot. I appreciate your time, and uh, speak to you soon. My pleasure. All right. Nice